an idea of, uh, at least of what's in my head, we spent a little over a year going through the Gospel of John. And the aim was to meet Jesus, uh, to meet Jesus, to figure out who he was and what he said and what he did. And John's aim in writing that gospel, that story of Jesus, was so that we would believe, so that we would have life in his name. And having looked at Jesus for some time, then I wanted to look at uh, a part of the Bible that told us what it meant to live that good news. So having heard the good news about Jesus, what does it mean to live in that? What does it mean to live the Jesus life? And Philippians is an excellent example of that. Paul characterizes his words, you could really summarize almost the whole letter in, in three words. Unity, humility, and joy. So if if you want to know what, if if we could even say the ideal Christian life is like, it would be characterized by unity, humility, and joy. And we're going to talk about one of those today. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. I'm actually going to back up a little bit, and I'm going to start reading uh, from chapter 3, verse 20. So that we have a sense of, uh, of the context. Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers... Whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. I'm going to pause right there. Uh, I know that your bulletin and the screen say we're going to go on to verse 9, but I think there's enough in those first three verses of chapter 4 for us to look at. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we open up your word and as we look at It's instructions for us, what it means to live the Jesus life, what it means to belong to Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would open our hearts. Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. May we see the beauty and glory of Jesus And be transformed. We ask it in his name. Amen. If you've ever had the opportunity to uh, go overseas, uh, then you've probably had some some experience like this. We, uh, Rebecca and I, spent the summer of 2008 in China near Beijing. And um, that experience was jolting uh, on several levels. I think you don't really realize just how ingrained in you your own culture is until you are put in another culture, especially one like uh, Asian culture that is so polar opposite to Western 
culture. It's one thing to go to Great Britain. They're kind of like us. We're like them, probably is a better way to say that. But when you go to the other side of the world and you're with people who are nothing, who share nothing in common with you, it's, it's a pretty jarring experience. And so there are two things that, uh, there were two moments that really stuck out to me during that experience. One of them was when we had to go, we had to do some passport stuff, and so we had to go to the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. Now, I don't know if you know this, but this is kind of just a cool little factoid. Um, wherever there is an embassy, wherever there is a United States embassy, regardless of what country that that embassy is in, that is considered American soil, which is kind of weird, right? That you can be in a foreign country, so you can be in China, but the moment that you step onto embassy grounds, you actually are stepping onto the United States of America. So even though the soil is still the same, um, you're actually in two different countries. You are geographically in China, but you are in the United States. And that's true of you know, the embassies that, from other countries that are in our country as well. That when you walk into the Chinese embassy in New York, I would imagine, or Washington, D.C., you're actually on Chinese soil. That's kind of how those things work. But there's something, there's another reality at play there, and this is the really interesting part. As we passed through those gates, not only did we go from one country to another, but we actually went back into our own culture. It was, it was really bizarre. But right as soon as we passed through the gate, there was Starbucks with good tasting American coffee, which was not something readily available outside of those gates. Right? We, now listen, geographically... We had not gone ten feet, but we had but we had moved a world away in those ten feet. We had we had changed cultures. There was another experience. Um, you may know, for instance, that in China the church is highly regulated. So the church that is legal is highly regulated by the Chinese government. Uh, which has, of course, led to a, a massive underground church. Some of the, the greatest areas of Christian growth in the world are in China, uh, where the church is growing underground, um, unregulated by the government outside the law. But in Beijing, if you're a Westerner, um, going to one of those uh, underground churches is really problematic, more problematic for the people that you would be worshiping with, the Chinese national. So we would often go, or went to a couple of times, to a church for expatriates. Uh, and an expatriate is just somebody who, live, who has their citizenship in one place and lives in another. And in order to get into this church, you actually had to show your passport at the door. If you had a Chinese passport, you could not go into this building. You could not go into this church. And so, you know, we showed our passports in the door, and we walked in, and as soon as we walked in, it was the smell. The church smell. I don't know if you, I mean, surely, you may not realize that churches have a smell. They have a smell, right? And it's church coffee. So for some reason, all of this revolves around coffee. Um, apparently, my acknowledgement of being in American culture is coffee. Um, but right as soon as we came in the door, you know, one of the, I have a fairly sensitive sense of smell. My wife makes fun of me for that, right? But 
in China, there are lots of things that assault your nasal cavity, right? There's a lot of things you don't want to smell that you smell. So coming into that church and breathing in that air, again, geographically, we had not left the country. But culturally, we had. So even though we were still in the same place, we were not in the same place. And that's what Paul is capturing uh, when he says to these Philippians, we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of somewhere else. And they would have understand, understood that because Philippi was an official Roman colony. Not every part of the empire got that distinction. Not everybody got that, iron, uh, that, that honor. But Philippi did. There were a lot of retired Roman soldiers that lived in Philippi. And so even though Philippi was very far away from Rome geographically... She looked very much like Rome. She was a little Rome. And the people who lived in Philippi, the people who were born there, understood what it meant to be good citizens. And so when Paul says, for instance, in chapter 20, our citizenship is in heaven, he's turning a light bulb on for them. He's saying, that's right, your bodies may be in this place, but your citizenship is somewhere else. And so... That even then is a picture for us of what it means to be the church, right? Not the place, but the people. That even though geographically, whether we're in Clanton, Alabama, or Beijing, China, our citizenship is the same. And even though the place hasn't changed, the culture does. The culture changes. And so Paul, now in this letter, he goes into what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven. And the first thing that he talks about as part of that citizenship is this idea of unity. Unity. And so there's a couple of things that uh, I want to point out to you. Uh, One is that unity is part of true community. Two, unity needs help. We are not naturally united. And three, unity is agreeing in and standing on Jesus. So let's look at what Paul says here in chapter 4. He says, my brothers whom I love. Now, when Paul uses that word brothers, um, when you see that in the New Testament, that actually means brothers and sisters, right? It was one word, but it meant the whole family. My brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm Thus, in this way, in the Lord, my beloved. He says it twice. Unity is part of true community. Paul tells them to stand firm. He grounds that command in who they are, who they were to each other, who we are to each other. Brothers and sisters. Let's just look at some of the words he uses. Brothers and sisters. So we're family, right? Do you view the church in that way, that these are your fellow brothers and sisters. Actually, the way some of us get along, we may in fact view each other as brothers and sisters, kind of the way I viewed my brother when we were younger. So, and then Paul says this, my beloved and my longed for. That's what he literally says. My beloved and my longed for. I want you to, I want you to hear the emotion in Paul's Language, right? When he says, beloved, my beloved, 
whom I, these people whom I love. Like this is the same word that God the Father uses of God the Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the object of your affection. That's what Paul says these people mean to him. Longed for. Used earlier in the letter, it captures Paul's desire to be out of prison and to be with his friends. Or it captures Epaphroditus' desire, his homesickness. Um, So despite their flaws and problems, Paul longs for these people. He cherishes these people. He wants to be with them. He loves them and he misses them. And I wonder, does, does such language characterize our feelings about each other? Is this, is this how we talk about one another? My beloved, my longed for, my joy, my crown. Paul is, when he says that, I want you to think of the parent. Uh, we have a couple of parents who will be doing this in just a month, right? When the, when the child walks across the stage at graduation and the parents, the parent, some parents cry for that, some parents cheer, um, But the idea is this, right? That as that child walks across the stage and collects their diploma, that their achievement is that parent's achievement. Their diploma is also, in a sense, that parent's diploma. My joy and my crown. These people matter to Paul uh, because he is a proud parent. He's a proud papa. He loves what he sees in them and wants to see them go further Later on, when he's dealing with uh, these two ladies who are fighting with each other, he says, help me, these, help these women who have worked side by side with me. They're co-workers, they're fellow laborers in the gospel. He says, I implore Euodia and I implore, I urge Syntyche, you know, um, when you coach when you coach Little League soccer, um, one of the things that you have to work on is, actually when you coach Little League baseball, Little League football, anything, right? One of the common refrains that you shout from the sidelines is, you're on the same team, right? Stop taking the ball from each other. Like, don't fight for the ball. The other team is winning because you keep fighting for, over the ball. You're on the same team. You can imagine... Paul coaching these two ladies when he calls them fellow workers, right? He's, he's coming alongside them. He's not barking at them from the sidelines, but he's coming alongside and he's getting down on the level and he's saying, ladies, you're on the same team. I urge you to get along. And so Paul bases his call to unity, his call to stand firm on relationships, on who we are to each other. He also tells us, uh, we also realize that unity needs help. Um, Look at verse 2. I urge Euodia, and I urge, he repeats it, uh, he repeats that verb twice. I urge Euodia, and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Um, We don't really know what's going on between these two ladies. We don't get any information about that. Uh, and actually, it's kind of significant, it's kind of important that Paul doesn't mention it. Because that's not really the issue. What's more important than what divides them is the fact that they are divided. What matters more than their fight 
Or what they're fighting over is the very fact that they are fighting. And so Paul has to get involved and he tells them gently and yet forcefully to agree, to agree in the Lord. And we're going to come back to that in just a second. Now, we don't know what they were fighting about, but we know their experience, don't we? I mean, human beings don't have to be alive very long to be in conflict with another human being. Like that, That's just natural to us. This is because by nature we seek division. By nature we seek isolation. Why? I think it's because we want to protect ourselves. Right? We, we want to protect ourselves. We want to protect our identities, our opinions. Right? We're, we're afraid of being devalued. We're afraid of being run over. And so rather than link arms, we put up our fists. Some of us... Uh, Some of us fear the opinions and approval of others too much. And so we clothe ourselves in insecurity. Some of us don't fear the opinions and approval of others enough. And we're clothed not in insecurity, but in cockiness. And yet the same problem exists. The same pride is there. It's the same love of Self. And so we seek division, uh, we seek to protect ourselves, we seek to put up walls. Conflict is uncomfortable because we don't really want to invite other people into the struggle, right? We don't really, if, if we actually engage in the reality of our conflict, like if we went to each other and said, hey, I'm sorry, what we're doing is we're actually taking down the wall and we cannot fathom doing that. Because we might have to say we were wrong. We might have to admit that we don't see everything perfectly. And so rather than do that, we put up walls. We build walls of self-protection. And they take a few forms. One, we blame others for our misfortunes. Or we blame our circumstances. Or we make excuses for our poor choices. Either way, we put up a wall. Another way this looks, and it's particularly nasty in the church, is we make assumptions about the motives of other people. Without asking, without moving towards another person, what we do instead is we move away. And, we, and as we move away, we make an assumption about what that other person is thinking. And so, Paul urges us not to... To do this, and, and when that happens, we actually need, and this is, this is so counterintuitive, when that happens, when, when conflict arises, we actually need other people to step in. Now, does that go against the grain of your nature or what? Like, when you are aware of a conflict between two people, I don't know about you, but my default mode is, I'm going to let them work that out. It's not really my business. Don't need to meddle. Right? It's not my business. I don't need to meddle. Paul says, no, no, no. Meddle. Get involved. Right? That's what he's doing from a distance. And he even encourages some anonymous fellow companion to do the same. Right? He says, I ask you, true companion, literally loyal um, yoke bearer would be the, would be the word there. Right? Paul, 
Paul conjures up the image of two oxen bearing the same yoke, pulling in the same direction. He's calling on some anonymous leader in the church and saying, You, loyal companion, my, my, my yoke bearer, help these women. We have to get involved. Paul is asking for inter- intervention. And it's a good thing that he leaves the name field blank. Because we ought to put our names right there. It's a good thing that he leaves it anonymous because we should see ourselves in that role. Instead of saying, I don't, it's not my business, you know, let's just leave it to him, I'm not going to meddle. Of course, you know, we don't mind making it our business when we want to talk to somebody else about it. Right? When it comes to gossip, we don't mind making it our business. But actually confronting the problem and helping two people talk it out, we don't want to do that. But that's what Paul asked for, Right? We usually, our, our, our default mode is, I don't want to get my hands dirty. And Paul says, no loyal companion, get your hands dirty. We need work here. And so Paul calls us to come in. Paul calls us to step in. You know, grace, fellowship. That word fellowship means that we share in something. And it's nice when we can share in the joys it's nice when we can share in the victories and the triumphs. But a fellowship means that we also share in the sorrow. It also means that we share in the struggle. It means that we don't cut one another off. Uh, we, don't, we don't cut the, the, the straggler in the flock off from the rest of the flock. right? We, we circle back around to pick up. Or if, there are, or if there are two people in conflict, like there were in Philippi, and probably... Maybe what's going on in Philippi, because unity is a main concern in this letter, it's possible that these two ladies are actually leading two factions in the church, right? That people are beginning to kind of stand behind one or the other. And Paul is calling them to lay down the sword and to, and to come together, right? The call to unity is not a call to, to fight each other Face to face. It's a call to fight with one another side by side. And so unity is rooted in community. And unity needs help from the community. But what exactly is unity? Where exactly do we come from? If, if we have a conflict, you and I, if we're at war with each other, how does somebody else come into that? And where do they point us? Paul gives us a couple of indications. Overall, he says, stand firm and agree. In what? In the Lord. Unity is agreeing in and standing on Jesus. Now, before we go into that, here's what unity is not. Unity is not unanimity. Unity does not mean that we agree on everything. Cody King is back with us this morning, just finished Marine Boot Camp. Uh, he's very conspicuous in his uniform with his cut hair. You should speak to him after this is over with. Right? One of the features of boot camp is kind of a forced sense of unity. Now, I'm not speaking from my own experience, so Cody can correct me after this is over with. Um, but right, the idea behind boot camp isn't just that we get you in good physical shape, but that we get you to consider the rest of the people in your group more important than yourself, right? And so 
We're all going to look the same, right? Whether Whatever the skin tone is, we're all going to cut our hair the same. We're all going to wear the same thing. We're all going to do the same thing. And if you don't pull your weight, everybody suffers, right? That's the idea. The idea is to enforce almost a unanimity. Well, in the church, we don't really do that. Now, that's what cults do. Um, but that's not... In fact, one of the reasons unity in the church is so incredibly difficult is because it doesn't mean unanimity. It doesn't mean we have the same team. It doesn't mean we share the same hobbies. It doesn't mean we vote the same. Unity is not found in any of those things. That is not the unity that Paul is talking about. If you want a good picture of unity... They just stepped off the stage, right? Unity is harmony. And harmony, well, you've got to be kind of talented to find it. In fact, harmony is, when, when harmony is done correctly, right, on, we're talking about music now in case you missed that. Um, when good harmony happens, you almost don't even realize it. Right, The voices and the instruments blend together so well that all your left, like you don't hear one over the other, you just get the whole beautiful picture. Now that's, now harmony is very different than singing in unison. When people sing in unison, they all sing the same note in the same range. And that maybe has its beauty in certain situations, but man, nothing can beat Harmony, when you pull all of these diverse instruments, both played and sung, when you pull all of them together for one beautiful presentation. That's what unity is. Unity is not that we all play the guitar and we sing treble. Or sing, uh, sing soprano or tenor or whatever, right? That's not unity. Unity is two guitars, a mandolin, a djembe, a trap set, and a piano with different people singing in different octave ranges and singing different notes that go together. But knowing how those things go together to make beautiful music. And that takes practice. And that takes work. And that is what unity is. So how do we do that? How do we achieve that kind of gospel harmony? Paul says two things. First, he says, stand firm in the Lord. These guys were facing a lot of opposition. There were enemies outside the church who wanted to see the church go down. Paul was feeling the pressure where he was in prison in Rome. They were feeling the pressure in Philippi. And there wasn't just opposition outside, there was opposition inside. There were false teachers in the church leading the church away from the gospel, leading the church away from Jesus. And so... Paul says, stand firm in the Lord. Come back to the gospel. And he's really just saying what he's already said in Philippians 1.27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul says, realize what it is that binds you together. 
Stop focusing so much on what it is that, that divides you, that tears you apart. That's right, Jennifer is a better guitar player than Darcy. But it would be, I think she is anyway. But it would be silly if on a Sunday morning they couldn't get along well enough to play one bit of music because they were envying each other over their different gifts. That would not be unity instead, right? Their focus is on presenting and helping lead us in worship. And so Paul says, stand firm in the Lord. Realize that what unites you is stronger than what divides you. Sure, we have plenty of things to fight over. There are plenty of differences of opinion, and some of them are even a big deal, right? We get heated over certain things. Look, if I gave you the range of my opinions, you probably wouldn't want me to stand up here for very long. And the same goes for you. But, if our Savior is the same, then we have a more important fight. If our Savior is the same, then what matters most is not our personal differences, but that we share the same King. Which leads to the second part. Unity is agreeing in the Lord. Paul looks at these two ladies in verse 2, and he says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree. Now, that's not quite right. It certainly means that. But there's a little more to it. Paul's actually using a word he's used already. And he used it in Philippians 2, 2, where he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Same, same exact phrase translated two different ways. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul's saying, have the mind of Christ. Right? Paul's saying, again, humility comes into play. That if we're really going to be united, we have to be humble. So, if we're going to put these two things, maybe distinguish them a little bit. When Paul says, stand firm in the Lord, he's talking about our outward face. The way that we look at the world outside of the church. And then when he says agree in the Lord, he's talking about the way that we look at each other as we look at Jesus. That I can actually look at you and I need to look at you and you need to look at me and say, that person's more important than I am. They have, dare we say, they have more value than I do. They are precious to Jesus. And so what can I do to lower myself in deference to them? So that isn't, So when Paul says, I urge these two ladies to agree in the Lord, he's not saying you've got to agree on everything. But you do have to agree on Jesus. We have to agree on what matters and we have to have the mind of Jesus. And what was the mindset of Jesus? Humility. Right, he was the king of heaven who gave up all his rights in order to die. Friend, when you and I, when you and I grasp what it means to die to ourselves for one another, we will have unity. On the stage, if Fred is bound and determined that he must be louder, 
that his voice must be louder, that his guitar must be louder, that, that he needs to be heard over everybody else, it destroys unity. Destroys the harmony, and we don't have a very good experience. But every good musician realizes that they only have one part to play. And they must play their part well, but their part is not more important than anyone else's. In fact, if we are to be led in worship well, then everyone, then everyone must actually show deference to the other musicians. Fred must actually make it his aim to not outplay Jennifer. And Jennifer must not outplay Bailey. And Bailey can't outplay Darcy. They all have to show deference to one another so that they present a harmonious voice and so that God is pleased and glorified. And the same is true of our agreement in the Lord. What matters most is His will. What matters most is that He's the King. And when we realize that we are God's dearly loved people, that we are God's blood-bought people, and when we realize that we share in the same work together, we share the same yoke, we're pulling the same plow, and when we realize that it is our responsibility to bear with one another, that when someone begins to fall behind, or that when, when two are at war with each other, that it is our responsibility, our community calling to step into that conflict and not away from it. When we have our hearts set on Jesus, and when our feet are firmly planted in His good news, then we will be united. We will be, we will stand together. That is what the gospel calls us to be as citizens of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would work these realities out. It is so against our nature. It is so against our grain um, to give ourselves up. To follow Jesus' lead. To put, on, to put on Jesus as we are called to do. Father, this is an area of critique for many. Uh, for those here this morning who are skeptical of Christianity, um, I would imagine that their skepticism has much to do with the discord in the church, the dysfunction in the church. And we are a messy group of people. And in that way, we're not unlike Every human being who has ever lived. Except for one. The Lord Jesus. Who pursued the Father's will. With humility. So that he could unite a people. And so that he could be our everlasting joy forever. I pray that we would look towards that joy. A joy that we will all share in if we are in Christ. And as we look towards that joy, that we would humbly look at one another. That we would give up our sense of entitlement. That we would drop the walls of self-protection. That because we are secure in Christ, we have no need to be insecure with one another. And as that happens, Holy Spirit, as you work that reality in 
our lives. May we have unity. Unity in the gospel of peace. Our world knows much strife and much discord. As an embassy of heaven, may something different be known here. By your grace and for your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.